Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Well, how exciting it is to be here with you again, although I so wish this could be in person, as I'm sure you do too. I couldn't help but sense this New Testament flavor here of, of what we're doing today. Uh, I drove down here with a, a young leader of ours, Luke, and, and it just seemed like a, a gospel leader and, and a close ministry friend going to another church to tell about what the Lord is doing, and we've both been sent by this mother church. It just seems like such a thing that, that Paul would be writing about in the New Testament. And, and I, I hope that this can be an encouragement to you, maybe if you're in places and feeling a little discouraged, like, is, is, are what we're, is what we're doing even helping anything? Are we part of anything bigger? Know that the Lord is working even in this season, and the gospel is moving forward, the kingdom is advancing, and we get to be part of this revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit here in Madison, up in the Fox Cities, and I'll share a little bit more about that this morning, um, but I'm so excited to be here with you. Now, Father Scott called me uh, about a month and a half ago and said, would you come down while I'm gone on vacation and just share with, with our group, our, our body in Madison at Christ Church, what the Lord's doing and what your vision is for the Fox Cities? Um, so this message this morning might feel a little different because it's, it's like combination sermon and vision casting and personal testimony all wrapped up into one. Uh, so much so that I, I gave it a new genre name, and the name is uh, a servisimony. Um, <laughs> that may or may not stick, but I hope you are encouraged by this servisimony this morning. I'd like it to take you back with me five years ago in the summer of 2015 to Lynchburg, Virginia, nestled in the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, just a few hours from the ocean in Washington, D.C., in tons of U.S. history. Lynchburg had been our home for the last six years before that. And after I finished my PhD at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, which unites me with many of you, uh, this was the place where I landed my first, time, uh, first full-time professor job. I was teaching psychology at a Christian university there. And yes, the beginning years of that were really hard and lots of time and energy went into raising a young family and starting a career. But six years in, we felt like we had arrived. We were there, we made it. I loved the classroom. I loved my colleagues and my students, and they even seemed to like me back, which was great. Uh, I enjoyed esteem, I enjoyed influence. My wife loved her counseling work. We had meaningful relationships. Our kids were well-connected and thriving. Our lives were stable, predictable, and really, really comfortable. Then came what we have now called the Holy Disruption. It was a sudden and surprising call to pastoral ministry. And the call happened in the summer of 2015, but it was confirmed in so many ways after that in the following months through visions and dreams and words that people shared with us, people who were close to us and knew us and even perfect strangers. My favorite one uh, perhaps was when a student of mine came up to me right before class. So I was getting ready to teach statistics that day and it was about two minutes before class. I'm plugging in my laptop at the little lectern and he came up and he said, oh, excuse me, have you ever thought about being a pastor? 
Like, um, I gave him this general answer of, well, we'd be open to whatever the Lord might have for us. And he continued, he said, well, I feel like the Lord's calling you to be a pastor. And you're not really sure about it, but if you step forward in faith, he's going to work through you and your family in powerful ways. And then he just turned around and went and sat down in his chair. And it, it was such a, an incredible moment of uh, the confirmation of the Lord and his call on us. So over the next 30 months, we... We cried and we prayed and we read books and we prayed and we listened to podcasts and we prayed and we talked to trusted friends and mentors. You get the picture. Finally, in 2018, after almost a decade in higher education, uh, we traded our American dream life for a life of gospel risk. And we relocated our family to the suburbs of Chicago to train for planting a church in Wisconsin, which is our homeland. Now, we're not the first and we're definitely not the last to experience this kind of uh, call. In the Bible, Nehemiah was a man who had it all. He served the royal court in the Persian Empire, the world's superpower in the 400s BC. And he was the king's cupbearer. So he was the one responsible for picking and serving the wine to the king and also tasting it to make sure it wasn't poisoned, occupational hazard for sure. But this position was one of influence. Because he was close to the king, he was likely a trusted companion and confidant. And he had informal influence that gave him a sort of status and authority. Think of today like a president's cabinet. They would advise the president on important matters related to their, their experience and expertise. So Nehemiah had a great life. But then he experienced a holy disruption. Let's read about it from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It's in your bulletin if you have it there, or uh, you can turn in your pages of the, the scriptures to this passage. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. You see, Persian, Persia was not Nehemiah's true home. His family actually came from Judah, and they were probably one of the really wealthy families who were taken away in the exile about 140 years earlier by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he receives news that all is not well in his homeland. There's trouble. There's shame. There's ruin. The walls, that there's their defense against the enemy. This is not just a historical curiosity like for us. Oh, cool. Look at those ancient walls. These were the things that defended them against their enemies and contained the boundary for their community, it's in rubble. So these people are vulnerable, they're weak. Now, if I'm Nehemiah in that spot, in my place of security, I probably am imagining myself saying, oh man, that's a bummer. I hope they get things figured out. I hope someone comes to help them. But notice Nehemiah's response in verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was wrecked over this news. 
God gives him this burden for his homeland. He didn't ask for the burden. This was a gift of the Lord, a calling on him. And he prays, he fasts, he cries, he grieves. And we learn in verse 6 that he does this day and night. And from what we see in this passage, this continued for about a four-month period. So not only does God give Nehemiah the burden to do something about this, but he also calls him to lead the rebuilding project. I think it's important for us to notice here how Nehemiah handles this divine call. Now, we see later in the story that Nehemiah is a man of action. He likes to get things done. But his first response is not going to the king. It's not leaving for Jerusalem. It's not even recruiting some kind of rebuilding team. See what he does? He prays. He waits. Waiting isn't wrong. Waiting isn't weak. Often, in fact, there's a time of waiting and testing that comes with every call from the Lord. A test of faith, a test of our trust. Yes, there's a time to act. But we have to wait for that right time from the Lord. So God opens the door for Nehemiah to ask the king at the right time. And we heard that in the, the reading this morning. And he receives the king's blessing to go and to rebuild. So he travels to Jerusalem. But before he announces any kind of plan to, to anyone, he takes a look at the scope of the project. He goes by night by himself and he looks at the rubble to see what's, what's it going to take to get this job done. Finally, Nehemiah comes to the people in Jerusalem and invites them into this calling to rebuild. And this was the last section of our reading, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. So now he's addressing the people who he's hoping will come alongside to help the rebuilding. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Do you see how Nehemiah brings the people into this vision? He doesn't make a pronouncement. He doesn't use guilt. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't force his will on them. Instead, he uses the same language that had broken his heart in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 3. So he says, guys, here's the situation. Our homeland is in ruins. We need to rebuild. God's hand is on this. The king has given me his blessing. And then look at the people's response. All right, let's do it. We're all in. Let's build. When the people are invited to participate in a genuine work of the Lord, there's such a compelling draw to that. What's more, as the story unfolds, we see how God brought so many different groups of people together and united them in this project, people who never would be together otherwise. But he brings these factions with different diverse interests in and unites them in this common vision to work tirelessly and even in the face of lots of adversity as we read through the rest of the story they rebuilt this wall in an astonishing 52 days the hand of the lord was on this work now we feel like the lord has given us the story of nehemiah to guide us through this season because like nehemiah we enjoyed a wonderful life influential life in a distant land 
And like Nehemiah, we experience this holy disruption in an extended period of waiting and prayer and discernment. And like Nehemiah, our hearts were broken over the ruins of our homeland. Like Nehemiah, we've been called by the Lord to return and rebuild. Right now, we feel like we're living in chapter two where we've moved to the city, we're assessing the, <laughs> the scope of the project. And like Nehemiah, we just know that when we share this call that the Lord's hand is on, sorry, we know that the hearts of many will be stirred to participate and their hands strengthened for the work. Now the ruins in Nehemiah's day were really easy to see. The gates were scorched and the, the stones were toppled. But what do the ruins look like in our homeland, the Fox Cities, in 2020? Now, to those of you who aren't familiar with the Fox Cities, I should probably explain. Uh, there are a bunch of communities along the Fox River between Green Bay and Oshkosh, and including Oshkosh. And it's the third largest population center in the state of Wisconsin, behind Milwaukee and Madison. And they're along the, the Fox River. The largest ones are Appleton and Oshkosh and Nina. And Kirsten and I, my wife and I, grew up in Oshkosh, and now we actually moved to Appleton about a month ago. But what do the ruins look like? Not really bricks and mortar. Some are visible, for sure, but many of the ruins are invisible, though no less real. We've seen emotional brokenness. We see anxiety and fear and depression. We see mistrust. We see lots of substance abuse. And in fact, according to the CDC, Appleton and Oshkosh, the Oshkosh Nina area, are numbers one and two in the whole United States in the highest rates of binge and heavy drinking. And the Wisconsin Department of Health Services reports that many of these folks have co-occurring mental health problems. We see strained relationships. We see spiritual emptiness. We've met with about nine or ten pastors so far in the area, and we've received one consistent message from all of them, and that is there are so many people in the Fox Valley who grew up in mainline or, or great tradition churches, but they've left the faith because they view the church as irrelevant, because the gospel that they heard didn't touch the very core of who they are. They never really encountered Jesus in those places, and so many people are without a spiritual home and they're vulnerable like the Jewish people were to the attacks of the enemy whose purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy, which we read in John 10.10. 10. So God has called us to enter these ruins and to rebuild. Our vision that the Lord has given us is to rebuild a spiritual home where people find renewal in Jesus, in his church. What might this renewal look like? Probably lots of things, but we think it'll look like two things predominantly. First, a new freedom in Jesus, and second, a new family in the church. So first, a new freedom in Jesus. If you have your Bibles or your bulletin, turn to the gospel reading from today, Luke chapter 4. So Jesus had just been baptized and then tempted in the wilderness, and Luke takes great lengths to say, He's been empowered by the Spirit in these two places. Now Jesus comes again in the power of the Spirit, Luke is very specific there, to teach in the Jewish synagogues. And he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And let's reread what he said, starting in verse 18. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So with the coming of Jesus comes a brand new era in human history. Salvation is not an abstract concept, but it's embodied in a very person, God and man. What does this salvation look like? In Jesus' words, it means or looks like freedom to those who are captive or prisoners of war, those most in need of God's help. It looks like recovering of sight to the blind. Sure, it could be physical, and we do see that in the, in the Gospels. And we believe that God will open eyes physically, but even more, a spiritual blindness. Freedom to the oppressed. A proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is a reference to the year of Jubilee, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 25, if you're so inclined. But every 50 years, people return to their homes, all debts were canceled, and all slaves were set free. It was a year of liberation. It was a year of freedom. What might this look like for us? We might even ask four questions here from this text. What things are we captive to? What are we enslaved by? It might be things like money. It might be things like our our possessions, our cars and boats. It might be our, our hobbies or our work. These things that we are uh, giving our loyalty and allegiance to. Second question, what are we blinded by? What things keep a sheet in front of us so that we can't see clearly of course, culture and our cultural values often blind us. And I think for many of us, our, our busyness blinds us. We're so frantically doing things that we just we can't see clearly what's happening around us. What are we oppressed by? What are the things that are, that are pushing us down? Maybe it is things like fear. Maybe it's anxiety or worry about the future, especially in the, the uncertainty of our of our season in life here around the world. Maybe it's spiritual influences. Maybe there are actually spiritual oppressions that are, that are holding us down and keeping their thumbs on us. And finally, what are we impoverished by? What keeps us living in spiritual poverty or even physical poverty? For many, it's a trust in their own ability to put them in places and to rescue themselves. So here's the bad news. The bad news is we often don't even see how we're held in captivity. But then even when we see, we can't get ourselves free from it. Now, as I was at this very point in preparation this week, uh, I had, there was a knock on our door and one of the neighbor girls had come over and she was kind of frantic and, and she explained to me how this bird was caught in her fence and she couldn't get the bird out and she wanted my help. And, and so I, I got my shoes on and walked across the street and found this young turkey chick. We've got a, a family of turkeys in our neighborhood and this is in the city. I don't know how they got there, but it's really awesome. 
So this turkey leg was stuck in the iron fence in a little decorative part like this, and it was flapping, but there was no way this turkey was getting out. No amount of flapping, no, and in fact, no other turkey could have helped this turkey out of the fence. It was stuck. The only way out was the intervention of some being way outside of that turkey's experience and knowledge. I had to lift that small leg of the turkey out of the decorative fence and out of the snare, something that it or uh, any other turkey for that matter could never do. So here's the good news. Jesus comes in the power of the Holy Spirit to do that for us. He brings freedom from the things that are binding us and pushing us down and holding us captive and keeping us poor, either literally or spiritually. For many of us, it's idols that keep us in captivity. An idol being anything that we put our trust in, in place of God. Anything that we trust for our ultimate hope, instead of the Lord. So we long to see a demonstration of the kingdom. A demonstration in word and in deed, bringing freedom from what binds us. See, our loves and our allegiances, the things that we are loyal to, are disordered. And when these loves and allegiances are properly ordered, we walk in the freedom that we've been designed for. And that freedom comes only from our union with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So so renewal looks, one, like freedom in Jesus. It also looks like a new family in the church. Now, either grab your bulletin or turn in your Bibles to our New Testament reading today from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is writing to a divided church, and he's writing to correct them. He's confronting them about their divisions, their factions who are following different leaders in the church. And he writes this in 4.14 and following, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Following Jesus means membership in a new family. Now, it's not that biological family doesn't matter. We're not saying that at all. But now God's family holds primary loyalty and allegiance for us. Jesus teaches the same thing in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and following. So in the gospel, we're forged into a new family. In my former life, I was a developmental psychologist. And I can tell you that family exerts a really powerful influence on an individual. Our family influences the things that we value. Does our family value hard work? Does it value leisure? Does it value making money? Does it it value being generous? Our values come from our family. Our family influences how we handle conflict. Do we sweep it under the rug and pretend that nothing's wrong? Do we dive headfirst into it and argue very loudly? Our family influences how we, uh, the appropriate emotions to express and how we express them, how we relate to one another, the patterns that that we use in our relationships, and so many more things. Now, some of us come from families that have formed us in really healthy, gospel centered ways. Others of us come from families that are characterized by so much dysfunction and pain that we just wanted to run away from them. 
the reality is most of us come from families with a mixed bag of both of those, some really healthy formation and some unhealthy. But when we experience life in Jesus, we're brought into a new family where we're formed into the image and way of Jesus in community with one another. As Christians, we're not brought into an abstract teaching or philosophy. We're brought into a person, a living union with Jesus who took on our humanity. God took on our humanity so that we could be brought into the very life of God. Amen. And so the only place where we can be in Christ, and that's such an important Bible phrase, the only place we can be in Christ is actually in the church, his body. And the way we're formed into the kinds of people who embody Jesus to the world around us is by imitating our fathers and mothers in this new family, in the church. So in this new family, this is where we experience transformation, where by the power of the Holy Spirit, we unlearn these old unhealthy ways of relating and um, our, our patterns, our allegiances, our values, our expectations that are unhealthy, and we're reformed by gospel-centered ways of living in this new family. And of course, those trickle into our, our, our biological, our natural families and other relationships. So Nehemiah was called home to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. He was called to participate in God's restoring of his people. God has called us home to the Fox Cities of Wisconsin to rebuild a spiritual home where people find renewal in Jesus in his church, a new freedom in this new family. Well, what has God called you to? In Nehemiah's story, I think we see a model for how divine calling often unfolds. First, God gives a heart for a particular need, and this can't be manufactured. It's not something we can build up in us. I'm just going to become so impassioned over this need. This is a God-given passion, being moved by a need that we encounter. Then we see a season of waiting and prayer and discernment, even fasting, so that our wills are connected to God's will for this particular situation. And then, yes, moving to wise, thoughtful action at the right time. I was praying for you this past week, and I just had the sense that there are different groups who are different places along this journey, and this is right where you should be at the moment, but some of you have yet to be stirred by this kind of um, experience where you have an anguish over the need of a particular people. Jesus, would you visit some today and wreck them over the ruins in our world? May they be moved to grieve and to cry and to pray for these people and then at the right time to do the things that you're calling them to do. And I also think that there are some who are listening today who are waiting, that you have this brokenness, you have the call, and you're longing for something to be done about it, but it's not yet time to act. And I feel like the Lord wants to encourage you in this season of waiting, that waiting isn't wrong and it's not weak. And actually important formation is happening in this particular season that will be a key to the rebuilding when it's time for you to act. So Lord, would you strengthen these people in the waiting, 
be present to them in their prayer, their seeking you, their fasting. Lord, reassure them of your call and please make it clear to them when it's time for them to move forward into action. And Lord, for all of us, would you please strengthen our hands and hearts for the work that you've called us to do in embodying the healing, restoring, freeing presence of Jesus to the broken parts of our good creation. And we ask this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.